Welcome everyone to Black Coffee and Theology. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. (laughs) So thank you to all of you who continue rocking with me on this podcast journey. I appreciate you. Appreciate your work. Appreciate you listening, sharing, all those things. I also appreciate how you all show love to the larger collective of the three black men with Trey and Sam. Love y'all. So on this particular episode, you're going to get a bonus episode of a talk and a presentation that I gave. Uh, This was maybe now a month and a half ago where uh, your boy was doing his scholarly thing. <laughs> and so I gave a talk and then I gave a Q&A. The Q&A will not be on this, but you can hear my talk. And the talk is entitled, What Does the Negro Require? Lasting Equality That Doesn't Center Whiteness. And that is a title. <laughs> Essentially, what I wanted to do was reach for a definition of equality that gives dignity to the marginalized, right? And so I wanted to reach for it theologically, eschatologically, uh, spiritually, and heart-wise, right? And so... This was my attempts to do so. So sit back and relax and enjoy this episode. Good morning, everyone. I am so honored to join you in this space. (laughs) I am a theologian radically committed to softness, divesting from toxic forms of masculinity, racism, and anything else that stops us from having communal rest. We join each other virtually in a way that has become rather common over the past two and a half years, hasn't it? Right. Uh, With that said, the title of my paper today is What Does the Negro Require? Lasting Equality That Doesn't Center Whiteness. In our time together, I want you to feel free to take a deep breath, write notes, etc., whatever makes you feel engaged. So I want to start out my time with a time of grounding. This is typical for me whenever I give a presentation, a sermon, a paper, uh, whether I present uh, this grounding in the form of a piece of literature or a biblical passage or a song, This is a time for you to get into whatever posture is relaxing to you. If it helps you to close your eyes and take a deep breath, please do just that. To honor this conference theme, I will read a prayer from Martin Luther King Jr. Grant us visions that shall lift us. Hmm. O God, our eternal Father, we praise thee for gifts of mind which thou hast endowed us. 
we are able to rise out of the half-realities of the sense world to a world of ideal beauty and eternal truth. Teach us, we pray thee, how to use this great gift of reason and imagination so that it shall not be a curse but a blessing. Grant us visions that shall lift us from worldliness and sin and to the light of thine own holy presence. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I want to share a story with you. This story is precious to me and one that has shaped me and molded me. I remember being a child, probably around seven or eight. My mother and I were in a taxi cab. <laughs> yes, that's right, a cab. <laughs> Pagers were prevalent in that time period also, but I digress. And so on the way to this doctor's appointment, and just to set the scene for you, uh, my mother and I were there, and my mother looks nothing like me. <laughs> she is fair-skinned, so light that she could almost be white. She has and had such a way with words and laughter that instantly anyone in her presence would find themselves smiling, laughing, bubbling up and talkative. <laughs> well, that wasn't the scene that day. <clears throat> with my small body huddled in the back of the cab, I noticed something odd. My mother was attempting to engage the cab driver, a white man in conversation. Hmm. My mother's cheerful disposition and excited questions and thoughts were met with grunts and one-word answers. Even as a child, this unsettled me. When we reached our destination, this man's interactions with my mother had not changed. When we got out of the vehicle, the entire scene shifted. With the door still open, the man sped off yelling the N-word. This was the first time that I not only realized that I was different, but deeper than that, something about my mother and I was hated. My innocence was taken by that driver, and I knew then that the world was not equal. I would grow to recognize the look on that man's face throughout my whole life. It would come in the look of a teacher who could barely restrain their contempt of me, or when applying for a job, or in some of my friendships with white loved ones. I knew that the common thread was some form of racism. Hmm. Since we are theologians of various kinds in this place, I want to turn to the Bible for some guidance as we navigate the waters of equality, diversity, and liberation. Let's open up to Revelation chapter 7, and as you turn there, I want to pose this question. How do we approach the work of equality, theologically, mentally, and emotionally in a way that reaches for eschatological peace and safety. Again, how do we approach the work of equality theologically, mentally, and emotionally in a way that reaches for eschatological peace and safety? 
Revelation chapter 7, let's drop down to verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So here we are in Revelation chapter 7. Now let's take a deep breath. (laughs) I know that the book of Revelation has a multitude of opinions, theories, and uses. I would love to go into some of them in a discussion format, (laughs) but that is not why we are here today. (laughs) Sufficient for our time (laughs) in this place is this scriptural passage and the essence of what it is communicating. Let's look at verse 8. Here we see either a metaphorical or literal vision of the future a time where a great multitude of humanity has gathered with different with differing bodies but a singular vision sit with the beauty of this passage in much of my work i often get asked what is the end vision of what you are fighting for when will you be happy what will you be happy with what are you fighting for I must confess that this vision is foremost in my mind. What John is seeing is foremost in my mind. The beauty of humanity and harmony and worship is an alluring picture. How do we get there, though? Again, I confess that the first time I taught this passage, a student expressed extreme shock that everyone wasn't white. Three hints at the ethnicity of this individual. This person at first became defensive, then enraged, then outright curious as they had never before had the notion that everyone in heaven wouldn't be transformed to white English-speaking people. Their view of equality was rooted theologically in this vision of white-centered transformation. Hmm. Aha, white-centered transformation. And while some of you hearing this may think that this sounds silly, many of our institutions, including churches and seminaries, either teach this explicitly or, by the structuring of syllabi, content taught, material cited, and those deemed trustworthy are just as complicit and silly.
What does equality mean to you? What does diversity look like when you imagine it? Turning it over in your mind. Feel free to write down things that come to mind. Whatever you need to do. As a black, chronically ill man, I want to answer this question by turning to the idea of the vision of future days again. To do this, I want to read words found in the book Black Imagination, a curated collection by Natasha Marin. Here in this book, uh, Adrian Lafay writes this particular passage and writes, It was frightening for me to think that there could possibly be a world that valued, loved, and kept me safe. Since I don't have an accurate reference for this type of existence, I'm petrified I would leave out things that would be my innate birthright. Sadly, because I lack vision to see them. I know when I create, I could not achieve any painting success if I had no vision. Where there is no vision, the people will perish. Proverbs 29:18. Even when I attempted to imagine my made-up world, the magic was fleeting, and, in, and that in itself makes me want to weep. I didn't realize how this question would affect me. I thought it would be fun until I couldn't see my possibilities even in my imaginary mind. Processing this question became incredibly more difficult. When I thought about how the black mother has to adjust her children's perspective at age five so they can safely attend kindergarten and not be harmed while away from her. I can't answer this type of question because just the idea makes me feel worse knowing I might not ever achieve a glimpse of the what if I was loved, valued, and safe. Hmm. Equality can be a funny word. And I turn to the words of this book, Black Imagination, because the premise of the book is sketching out a vision of a world in which black people feel safe, loved, and cared for. Typically, when we have equality talks, things start at the center, as we center whiteness, white feelings, and in doing so, remove power from those who stand to gain the most from true equality. I ask here, what does the Negro require? What do black folks need in this present and evil age? Don't be alarmed by my use of the word Negro. It is intentional. In my question, I channel the spirit of two profound men, W.E.B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass. Du Bois wrote an article in 1935 entitled, Does the Negro Need Separate Schools? In this work, he interrogates some notions that are still prevalent today in regards to a post-racial society. 
At one point, he answers his question by saying, the question which I am discussing is, are these separate schools and institutions needed? And the answer to my mind is perfectly clear. They are needed just so far as they are necessary for the proper education of the Negro race. The proper education of any people includes sympathetic touch between teacher and pupil, knowledge on the part of the teacher, not simply of the individual taught, but of his surroundings and background and the history of his class and group. Such contact between pupils and between teacher and pupil on the basis of the perfect social, social equality as will increase this sympathy and knowledge. Mm. I turn to another <laughs> black man, Frederick Douglass, and answer the question, what do black men want? That he asked in an annual meeting of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society just days before the end of the Civil War. And he says, I have had but one idea for the last three years to present to the American people. And the phraseology in which I clothe it is the old absolute Abolition phraseology. I am for the immediate, unconditional, and universal enfranchisement of the black man in every state in the union. Loud applause, loud applause. <laughs> um, <laughs> Without this, his liberty is a mockery. Without this, you might as well almost retain the old name of slavery for his condition. For in fact, he, if he is not the slave of the individual master, he is the slave of society and holds his liberty as a privilege, not as a right. He is at the mercy of the mob and has no means of protecting himself. As I look at the way both of these men went about answering the spirit of equality, I am inspired and overwhelmed at their example. Faced with the hatred of a nation and the delusion of individuals who thought that they were serving the God of the Bible by enacting all manner of evils against black people, still these men, among many other women and children, pressed onwards. What would it have meant to stop centering the emotions of a morally bankrupt nation? What type of freedom would that have provided for black folks and indeed for all those who are being brutalized in this country? <sighs> I turn now to our present day and the work set before us. How do we engage? First, 2020 found us entrenched in battling a global pandemic, racial riots, and bitter political infighting. It was a time, time and half a time. <laughs> the reach for equality is a communal work and all hands on deck type of activity that doesn't allow for anyone to be bystanders or wallflowers. As we go about the task of this communal work, we must recognize that for a time, all voices and perspectives are not equal. They simply can't be. This may feel disruptive, uh, especially for those who are in power, especially for white people for a time. So what do I mean by the word equality? How can we use it in, meaning, in a meaningful way? 
One definition is the state of being equal, especially in status, rights, and opportunities. We must think of those conditions by which those who are in the margins of our society are placed in environments of thriving. This cannot be done through anti-racism trainings merely, book clubs, prayer circles, sprinkling one author of color in your sermons or syllabus for the semester. If you're radical, maybe there are two, or even feel-good sentiments. How uncomfortable are you willing to be for the sake of equality? Equality in its very essence has to be fought for because it seems to be knit within our society to diminish, to other, and to harm. The biblical narrative is full of this testimony as well. Humanity has never proven itself to be com committed fully to the ethic of equality. I think of even in terms of being in the academy or being in upper level theological education and the burdens that are placed on people of color. And I think of even in my own life how difficult it was to be in school during times of racial uprisings and the burdens that were placed on people of color that were unique and that were imbalanced and how difficult that was to navigate and having to field white fragility as well as navigate the social implications of theological education in that time. And I would ask boldly, what does equality look like in that place? Is it equitable for me to sit in a largely white class and have my needs unaddressed? To be under the influence of pedagogy that centers whiteness? Do we know the needs, desires, and voices of those in society who aren't in the dominant class? I chose to ask the question, what does the Negro require? Because it does away with making everyone's needs central at once. As long as we concentrate on everyone, nobody gets anything. I remember a time in the not too distant past when I was in the midst of colleagues discussing various liberation the theologies and a number of white colleagues expressed their dismay and offense at the root of those theologies. Let's be clear, though, many of the liberation theologies have had to come into play because of a truncated gospel message and the evils of racism and white supremacy. The inability to name it or be uncomfortable leaves many of us in shackles. Liberation cannot come at the pace of white com comfort. A parting question that I would leave with you all in this place is what can you do individually and systemically to enact an ethic of equality?
Black Coffee and Theology Pod is a production of Three Black Men, the podcast about theology, culture, and the world around us. Follow us on Twitter at Three Black Men. If you like the content that you are receiving here and want to receive more, whether that is in longer conversations, essays, devotions, and videos from either myself, Sam, or Trey, please sign up for for our Patreon at patreon.com slash three black men. Don't forget to like, rate, and review Black Coffee and Theology Pod as well as Three Black Men.